The reading this morning is from Mark chapter 8, verse 1 to 30. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember, when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees, walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Syria Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you, Eden. Such a good reader. Uh, I broke my glasses this morning, so everything's a little bit swimmy. Uh, we'll do our best, though. You're all still very good-looking, so we know that they work. 
Well, we have come to a pivot today in the book of Mark. Chapter 8 is smack in the center of his... It reads like a play because it's divided equally. Sorry, not equally. (laughs) Easily. Glasses, that's what I'll say is wrong today. Uh, It's divided quite easily into three parts based on its three settings or three locations. So first, the story begins in Jewish Israel. Israel. But as chapter 4 closes, Jesus takes his disciples to the lake, across the lake, rather, to the non-Jewish lands outside of Israel. And after crossing the lake a few times back and forth, from the middle of Mark, chapter 8, on, Jesus returns to Israel and remains there as he leads his disciples on the road to Jerusalem. It's the road to the cross from here on. Mark chapter 8 is also an interesting chapter because it's a repeat. As we go through it today, you'll see a pattern emerge. You might even catch yourself saying, wait, haven't we been here before? And the answer is a resounding yes. We sure have. But the problem is the disciples didn't get it the first time around. They saw all these miracles and situations already, but they've failed to grasp their meaning. So Jesus does it all over again. What's funny, or sad, depending on your perspective, is that Mark 8 is such a strong repeat of chapters 6 and 7 that those looking to poke holes in the Bible have said that the events of Mark 8 couldn't have actually happened. There's just too many similarities between 6, 7, and 8. Therefore, Mark 8 must have been a mistake. Some old scribe must have copied the page twice, doubling things up when he should have just told the story once. And we'll address that in a little bit. But we're starting with Mark 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the people. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Delmanthua. Once again, a great crowd has gathered to hear Jesus teach. Once again, they find themselves in a very remote place. And having been there this time for three days, running out of food has become a serious problem. So once again, the challenge of feeding the multitude presses in. And Jesus asks his disciples how these people should be fed. Again, their response is discouraging. 
having seen Jesus feed 5,000 men plus women and children, they look at each other in bewilderment and ask, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It sure seems like Jesus is setting them up for a win. He's fed a lot with a little before, but they missed the glorious implications of it the first time. And again, they miss it a second time. So Jesus patiently walks them through the process. How many loaves do you have? And they answer, seven. And he sits everyone down and breaks bread and thanks the Father, and then gathers fish and thanks the Father, and again, sends those pieces out to the hungry. Miraculously, all are satisfied, and seven baskets full are gathered up as extras. Jesus then dismisses the crowd and heads out on the sea. Now I'm going to offend you. I actually want you to be offended by this. Don't be offended if the music is too loud or not to your taste. Don't be offended if the carpets here are too old or that someone in this church once said something to you that, that hurts you. Let that stuff slide. But be offended when I lump you in the same batch as the twelve. Because the moment that you say to yourself, stupid disciples, how did they miss that Jesus just fed 5,000 people and could easily feed four? Then you are, in the da- you are in danger more than they ever were. And I do this myself. All the time I read the Bible and say, I wouldn't have deserted Jesus at the cross. I wouldn't have asked to sit at his right hand. I wouldn't have been scared on the sea if he was in the boat. And that's proof that I would. It's proof that I missed Christ Jesus' express lesson for me. And here's why. It's proof that I believe in me more than I do him. Proof that I'm a proud little human in danger of forfeiting my soul. Luke 22, 31 Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded I have, demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. We need to be offended. There is great sanctification in catching yourself next time saying, well, I would never do that, or at least I'm not like they are, and then to rebuke yourself to take every thought captive, and to repent. We need to be a people of repentance. The next story. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Jesus sighs a sigh of exhaustion, exasperation, sorrow. Plenty of signs have been given. The religious leadership were privy to many. They definitely heard about others. And in fact, were presented with one specifically for them. When Jesus sent the leper to the priest, Mark 
144 and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourselves to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. And I always thought it was a proof that he was healed. Perhaps it's a proof to those that are looking on. The established leadership. So biblically, a sign was given to show that a prophet was a truthful person, trustworthy. He's speaking truthfully to you. Signs in the Bible were rarely just a sheer demonstration of power. But at least one commentator has singled out this phrase, sign from heaven, and compared it to the more common phrase, a sign from God, and he suggested that this is apocalyptic language. A sign from heaven is a call of forceful destruction. Think James and John, the sons of thunder. Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven when a Samaritan village didn't receive them? The very great irony of all this is that Jesus just provided for the needs of 4,000 Gentiles in Gentile territory. And now the Pharisees are calling for fire against the whole of the Gentile world. And Jesus responds, no sign will be given. And he gets into the boat and he leaves. They've had their signs. And they would have the sign of the empty tomb soon enough. Verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000? Excuse me. Sorry. How many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? So here's the thing about writing sermons. When you learn something, and by that I mean when the Holy Spirit opens up God's word to you and you understand something you didn't understand moments ago, you get excited. I get giddy. I get excited to tell you what God told me. And every once in a while, when I'm writing something really good, if you were near my office, you would hear me say, Oh, that's really good. All this to say, as Mark was writing his book, if you were near his office, all the time you would hear him say, oh, this is really good. Here's one of these moments. Verse 14, now they had forgotten to bring bread, but they hadn't, had they? No, because he goes on to say they had one loaf with them in the boat. And I think Mark sat there thinking, oh, this is really good. He's basically saying, this could have been the third feeding miracle. 
If five loaves fed 5,000 and seven loaves fed four, surely one loaf could have fed a dozen disciples on the sea, couldn't it? And it looks like they're dense. But this is the human condition. Fear runs away with our pants. Our immediate situation is the one that we're stuck in right now. It often fills our whole field of vision. And the unknown all but erases our memory of God's repeated faithfulness. The disciples are focused on their stomachs. But Jesus wants them to think of a greater matter, doesn't he? He just had a public encounter with the Pharisees, demanding a sign from him. And he says, watch out that you don't fail like them. But he uses the word leaven, which in the traditional context means corruption. Watch out that you don't fall like the Pharisees. But the disciples just think all the more about the food that they don't have. So Jesus calls for an all-systems check. Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts so hardened? Do your eyes not see? Do your ears not hear? Do you not remember? And it almost looks like Jesus drops the whole Pharisee Herod Levin thing, which he doesn't. Instead, he just hits them from where they're at, and he talks about food. Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did he take up? And they said 12. And the seven for the four, how many baskets of full broken, baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Jesus doesn't have to bring up leaven again because the leaven of the Pharisees and the disciples' lack of understanding are the same thing. They share the same root. Both groups refuse to acknowledge the glory of God in what they're seeing. They both suffer from hard hearts that block their reception of what Jesus is actually doing. The difference being, it's terminal for the Pharisees, but it's a matter of God's patient sanctification for the disciple, a gradual refinement for those that he's calling to his purposes. I wonder if I got that wet. I'm not electrocuted, so I'm okay. Do you not yet understand? You don't, do you? Okay. My love is steadfast. My patience is ample. Let's walk a little further together. And these are his words for us. Verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida. Before I move on, I'd like you to note that Jesus speaks of the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000 as separate events. So while there may be some strong parallels, which leads some people to question whether those are two separate feeding miracles, Jesus' teaching on the matter ought to solidify it for us. Both of them happened. Okay. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? 
And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hand on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Jesus is a man of compassion. And you can see this played out every time he heals someone. Now, often enough, the gospel writers, when they talk about the many people with diseases and afflictions coming to Jesus, the writers say that he healed them all at once. But when the writers slow down, describe the person, the circumstance, the one-on-one interaction with Jesus, we see each response is often quite unique. Sometimes he speaks healing. Sometimes he has a conversation. Sometimes he spits. Sometimes it's a touch. And part of me thinks this is to show us that healing isn't formulaic. You can't just feed in a prayer and expect the vending machine to pop out a miracle. But more than that, I believe it shows the careful and intimate compassion of our Lord, the one who knows each by name, who knows our history, our struggles, our questions, the number of hairs on our head. He meets us individually. So when he heals, it's personal. Each person is different, so each interaction is likewise distinct. Here, for the blind man, he leads him out of the village boundaries, which is unique. But note, Jesus leads him. He leads him, as you would for one who cannot see. And he spits, and he places his hand on his eyes, and here, and only here, in all the Gospels, does Jesus ask if it worked. And here, and only here, does it seem to only work somewhat. The man only is able to see partially. I see people. They look like trees. So Jesus touches his eyes again, and the man sees clearly. And Jesus sends him home, not back into town. In chapters 6 and 7, we've witnessed the multitude fed, crossing of the lake, an interaction with the Pharisees, and the healing of a deaf and mute man. In chapter 8, we've seen the healing of a multitude, crossing of a boat, confrontation with the Pharisees, and the healing of a blind man. Some differences exist. There are additions here and there, but there is a general pattern that is tough to deny. So we ask why. Well, we began this message today saying it's because the disciples didn't get it. When he called them together in Mark 3, he had an expectation on them. He called them as his disciples that they would be with him. They would be with him and come to know him. But beginning somewhere in chapter 4, his expectation on them has grown. He wants them to understand something more about himself. And again and again, they just do not. Mark 4.13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Mark 4.40, and he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 6, verse 51 and 2, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, 
but their hearts were hardened. 7.18, and when he said to them, and then, and he said to them, then you are, are you also with understand, without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? And all this gets gathered up. All this culminates in Mark 8 when he says, aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then again in 21, and he said to them, do you not understand? And they did not. And so he leads them down the road a little further. He's patient. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Why do you say, who do you say? Sorry. Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. You might remember Herod giving this same answer earlier in chapter 6. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. In Matthew's telling of this story, he has Jesus, Jesus responding, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God has given you this understanding. And this answer is, of course, an incredible thing because even if it feels like the answer is Jesus, and even if it sounds like the answer is Jesus, and even if it smells like the answer is Jesus, to actually say it, to put it together and actually say it with belief and understanding that this Jesus, this man of Nazareth, son of Mary, son of Joseph, flesh and blood carpenter, is the Messiah. That's beyond words. That's amazing. That's extraordinary. It's shocking. It's marvelous. And it's true. Because the Christ is what it's all been leading up to. Everything in Scripture has been pointing to the coming one, the Messiah, Christ. We come to know this from every story in the Bible. It's in every book. From Genesis, the Messiah would be born of the seed of woman, and Luke gives explanation to that. From Exodus, the Messiah would be the Passover lamb and typified by Moses. That's Exodus 12, and John 1 explains it further. From Leviticus, the Messiah would be the true high priest of Israel. Leviticus 13, 16, rather, and Hebrews 8 fleshes that out. In Numbers, the Messiah would be their king and the rock that gushed out water. Numbers 20 and John 7. In Deuteronomy, the Messiah would be a prophet like Moses and worshipped by angels. 
Deuteronomy 18, John 6, Deuteronomy 32, and Luke 2. In Joshua, the Messiah would be the commander of the Lord's armies, Joshua 5, and explained in Revelation 19.19. And then the Psalms, the Messiah is the Son of God. The Messiah would be resurrected. The Messiah would be despised and crucified. The Messiah would be hated without cause. The Messiah would be Lord and seated at the right hand of God. The Messiah would be in the line of Melchizedek. The Messiah would be the stone that the builders rejected. I could go on. I should go on. And I will go on next week. This is why we study. This is why we pray. This is why we gather together around the word and the meal because Jesus Christ is on every page. When Peter says, you are the Christ, he speaks of a secret held from before creation. He speaks of a deliverer anticipated by man and heralded by angels since Adam and Eve were in the garden. And he speaks of a redemption plan, thousands of years in the making. At Caesarea Philippi, Peter points to Jesus, a guy, a man of flesh and blood, just standing in front of him, and he says, Jesus, you are our Savior. You are the one we've been waiting for. You are the Christ. And that is wondrous. And that's why it's at the peak in Mark. Oh, this is good. Next week, I'm going to tell you why that's not enough. Why what Peter says is good, but he needs to know more. So this week and next week are tied together pretty closely. But let's pray together, and the servers can come up, and the worship team. Oh, Father, thank you for your miraculous revelation of who you are in your word and in Christ. Thank you that you do not leave us alone to figure this out because we wouldn't. We couldn't. Even knowing you, we get it wrong so often. Lord, we want to be a people that has eyes to see and ears to hear and a mind to remember. Do this for us, we pray, that we would have something to say to this world and that we would worship you in all that we do. Amen.